for over 25 years Leia Enichko has been an Italian to English translator of fiction for all ages Originally from Chicago Leia has lived in Milan since 1991 Her recent translations include Glorious by Roberto Piumini nominee for the 2024 Hans Christian Andersen award The Woman at Hitler's Table by Rosella Postrino and Lost on Me by Veronica Raimo. In this episode, Leia talked about her journey into translations, her translation of The Women at Hitler's Table and her love for translating fiction. Welcome to our podcast, Leia. Thank you for having me. How did you find your way into the world of uh, translations? Well, I didn't go out deciding to be a translator. It's just something that happened um primarily because I ended up here in Italy. So, I'm originally from the United States. I was born and raised near Chicago, and when I was in college, I was studying comparative literature with Italian as my primary language. and i really wanted to learn the language well and so i decided i'll go to italy and i'll study for a whole semester and i'll learn the language perfectly and i'll come back perfectly fluent um and after a semester in milan i learned only that i had a lot more to learn and because i didn't really have any money i was working on student loans um i said well i can't fly back to america and then return to italy any time in the next you know many many decades so i'll just stay until the end of summer and learn more and the end of summer came along and i said well i'm not done yet maybe i'll stay till christmas and i stayed till christmas and it became this running joke uh, with my friends and they said when is leia ever going to go back to to america and i never did and i've been here for over 30 years um But in the beginning I started like many ex- expats I started teaching English and I specifically taught to people in offices so I would go to their office I'd help them with grammar and conversation and edit their business letters or back then faxes um edit their presentations and little by little that became uh more helping them translate them from Italian And then one day um I found myself working at the offices of the Walt Disney Company Italy. And that was a whole new game because all of a sudden I'm helping with business presentations and business letters, but also their catalog and also their character names and also their uh zero issues which were um their mock-ups of new properties. So Disney Italy was a little bit different from all the other countries in Europe because they did their own books, they did their own magazines. They didn't license the, license them off to publishers. So when they did this, they would come up with these great things all written by Italians in Italian, but they couldn't take it to the Bologna Children's Book Fair in Italian because people around the world don't speak that language. and so they would come to me and i would start doing a ridiculous amount of uh samples and uh synopses and character names and adaptations and i loved it so much that i just started being a full-time translator um and that was about 25 years ago um in the meantime disney had become the global headquarters for their magazines business 
So uh, books were based in New York and parks were based in Florida and films were based in California and the magazines were based in Milan. And I worked with them for all of 20 years. I, I left them about 10 years ago because I also because I started working more in books. So the global magazines director of uh, Disney Italy, uh, Giacomo Rosella, he left the company and he w- worked for a new company called Battello Vapore or PMA. And they published children's books. And he called me and said, we need, you know, some of these samples translated into English. Will you do our books? And I said, yes. And I loved it, you know, even more because it was something new. And um, at that point, a miracle happened. And a publisher came and said, we like this book that your translator did. Will you sell us the series to publish in English? Um, and so I started translating for the author Pier Domenico Baccalario, who's just a phenomenal author of stories for kids. Um, and for example, for Random House, I did four novels called the Century Series. And it's kind of like a Da Vinci Code for children in junior high. And it was a lot of fun. Um, with time, I also met Vicky Satlau, who is an American literary agent living here in Milan. Uh, we met through a friend of hers and I started doing book samples for her and they were no longer children's stories. They were, she doesn't work with children's stories. They were for adults. And that was interesting because it was something new. And um, I remember when I, I had just met her and it was Friday night and she wrote to me and she said, Leah, I need something done by Monday morning. Do you, do you work on weekends? And I said, yeah, sure. We're always work on weekends. And she said, great. And five minutes later, she wrote back, you know, not only with the translation, but with something else. And she said, Leah, there's a, a publisher in New York who's looking for a translator for this novel, um, but it has to be turned it. They want a chapter translated as a sample. Do you want to try it out? But I also need that by Monday morning. You know, do you want to give it a shot? And I said, sure. So I did that and turned it in. And it must have been at the tail end of the selection because Flatiron Books came back and said, would you like to translate Rosella Postorino's book? Um, about Hitler's food tasters, and I absolutely said yes. Please tell us about the novel, The Women at Hitler's Table. Um, well, The Women at Hitler's Table was inspired by a real-life story. Uh, there was a woman uh, in Germany called Margot Volke, who in 2014, at the age of 96, admitted for the very first time that at the tail end of World War II, she had worked as a food taster for Adolf Hitler. Um, it was a story that Rosella read about in a very, very brief newspaper article in Italian. And she was just gripped by this story, by this scenario that was so horrific. Um, and she decided she had to interview uh, Margot Volk. She had to learn about the story and make a novel about it. And unfortunately, with the privacy laws in Italy, it was hard for her to track this woman down in Germany. And by the time she managed to find her address, uh, Frau Volk had passed away. And Rosella was heartbroken because there was no opportunity to interview her and find out exactly what had happened. Um, Vicky, her literary agent, said, Rosella, write the book anyway. And thank goodness she did. Rosella did her research. She is absolutely a researcher. So she went and studied everything about Hitler's eating habits, uh, about the World War, about the Wolfschanze, which features in this book. The Wolfschanze is the wolf's lair. Uh, Hitler's nickname was the wolf. And he had the secret headquarters hidden in the woods 
um, which is where a lot of our, our story is set. Um, so Roberta did her research and then she did a thought experiment and she said, what would it be like if I were in that situation? You know, if I were, you know, found myself in this hellish nightmare where I'm eating to survive, but the food I'm eating might kill me and it might also save Hitler in the process. Um, and she just did a thought experiment. And the, the answer to her questions was this novel. Um, she features, in a sense, herself. The main character is called Rosa, just like Rosella Posterino. Um, Rosa Sauer is a 25-year-old woman who grew up in Berlin. And is we, we see her at a period where she just falls in love. She, she marries the man of her dreams, and her life is beginning, and she wants to have a baby. And But in the background... You see that I, you see Hitler and she wants none of it. She's, she's from a Catholic family. They're not Nazis. She's not political. She just wants to live this love story and begin her life. Um, but she doesn't have a choice in this. War happens to everybody. She loses everyone who's dear to her. Um, her brother leaves. He goes off to America and never writes back again. Her father dies. Her husband, who again is not a Nazi, her husband actually volunteers to go off to war. Um, this is because at the end of the Great War, he, he's 10 years older than her, and he remembers clearly what it was like after the Great War and Germany had lost. And he said, we can't survive that. I mean, it's not survivable, so I have to go, and I have to avoid that from happening for our own, you know, for our own well-being, um, which Rosa lives as an absolute betrayal. Um, her mother dies at her side. Her house is destroyed. A bomb falls and, and she, she has no human connection left in Berlin. And so she decides to flee to what she thinks is a place of safety. She goes to a small town in East Prussia, uh, where her in-laws live. And there in a small town, um, the day after her arrival, Rosa is horrified when the SS knock on her door and say, Rosa Sauer, you have been chosen by the Fuhrer to be one of his food tasters. Um, and that is kind of where our story begins. What is very interesting is uh, all food tasters uh, that have been chosen are women. Well, actually, the, the, it's, it's an interesting part of the book because there were no men left. The, wor the men were at war. They were in the army. They had died. They were in hospitals. So no one was left. You had the aged men, very old men. Um, and there was, there was, it was all women. Women were the only ones, women and old men were the only people left or young, young boys. They were only women. So it was a Germany made of women. And so we have in, in her book, there were uh, 10 tasters. I believe in the original, in the actual life, there were 15. Please tell us about the author, uh, Rosella Postrino. She's an author who has a very particular style. She can be very dramatic. I mean, even the opening scene where you see these women, you know, walk into this room and it starts out very quiet and very slow. They wait in the hallway for half an hour and then there's all this silence. And then all of a sudden they start eating and eating and eating and, and it just speeds up and intensifies. Um, and she has this style that is very emotional and we're inside Rosa's head. So obviously if she's, and one thing to say about this character is that she's very talkative. Rosa is always talking. Uh, and if she's not talking, she's singing. And if she's not singing, she's humming. And if she's not humming or singing or talking, it's because she's sleeping. But she also talks in her sleep. 
And so she's just always on. And when you're in her head, you can kind of hear that coming through. Um, but as the story progresses, she gets more traumatized by all the people she loses and the, the horrifying situation that she's in. And so on the outside, she becomes quiet. But on the inside, she still has this voice that's raging along. The protagonist, uh, Rosa, seems to be a very conflicted person. What do you have to say about it? She's definitely particular in that she's quite cold. Um, Rosa is not uh, from lively Naples. She's not from Gay Perry. She's a Berliner. She's a German woman. Um, so she is a little bit hard, a little bit tough. Um, but yeah, she's absolutely conflicted because her life becomes something that's utterly conflicted. Um, she's eating food that is her survival. Now, Germany back then, uh, during the tail end of the war, was n the war was not going well for Germany. Um, there was widespread hunger. People didn't have food to eat. And so when Rosa is actually put in the situation of being asked to and being forced to eat huge amounts of really wonderful food, because this is for the Fuhrer. I mean, this is the best food in Germany. And she has to eat mountains of this food. It means her survival. I mean, food means survival. But for her, it also means death, possibly. It's, it's absolutely... As Rosella likes to say, um, by the act of becoming a food taster for Hitler, Rosa, at the same time, is being a victim and an accomplice because she's saving Hitler's life in the process. She's being accomplice to the, to the Reich, which she does not want, but that's, that's her lot. Um, throughout this story, we see her lose her sense of identity. Um, she loses everything that is dear to her, all of the people who know her are gone. She barely knows her in-laws. They're so much older than her. They could be her grandparents and they're from a small town. The women don't like her because she's a foreigner. She's a city girl. They think she's snobby. There's only one other woman there, Elfride, um, and she's also from out of town. Um, but she loses her identity and loses all her human connection and what she finds herself in is that the only human connection she has left are the shared bodily functions with other people. So these become her most important connections in the world. They're bodily functions. It's a, something of complete anonymity. So what Rosa has done is come up with a novel that kind of explores connection and identity and complicity and survival and basically what it means to be a human and to feel human in the company of other humans in a time that is completely inhuman. And it starts just with this opening scene of where they're eating for the very first time. And they're looking at this food and their mouths are watering and they're just, they're craving this food, but they're also terrified because they might be dead in 10 minutes. So, and, and they do this every day, every single day, they are taken to the Bolshanse um, twice, and they eat all three meals uh, to be served for Hitler. And this goes on for two years, every single day. So at the end, she's obviously tra traumatized for the rest of her life. Interestingly, the novel is available with uh, two different names. Exactly. So the original name is Lea Sajatrici, or The Tasters, or Food Tasters. Um, that title was taken because another person uh, had already heard, uh, also heard of uh, Frau Volk's story and had written a novel. Um, my working title was Hitler's Feast. Um, 
But then it's, I, I believe the Americans decided they didn't want to have Hitler's name in the title. So they called it At the Wolf's Table, the wolf being Hitler's nickname. Um, and the Brits who came out with the, with the publication later said, no, 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 we want to call it the women at Hitler's table, which really describes what's going on. The author uh, Rosella herself is a translator. I think uh, she translates from French to Italian. Uh, how was your collaboration? Oh, it was wonderful. Um, she's also an editor, so she just knows her words. Um, it was great to work with her because as I was going through um, the translation, I was able to contact her and ask her questions. Um, when I ask an author for questions, I do it in a kind of particular way. I don't say, oh, I don't understand this. Explain it. Because authors, some authors have the tendency to write you a two-page explanation when all I need is to understand these five words. So sometimes I'll ask the author for synonyms. I'll say, I'm not sure how to render this word. Uh, for example, nervoso in Italian. It can mean nervous or, un, you know, scared or frightened or jumpy. Or it can also mean irritable and testy and cross. And if you don't know what the author means, you're not sure how to render it. So sometimes I'll ask an author for synonyms. Other times there's a sentence, and, and this happened with Rosella. I mean, sometimes she writes a sentence and I really don't know what she's saying. So I'll write back and instead of saying, what do you mean? I'll say, can you please put this sentence in different words, completely different words, but the same sentence. Once I understand it, I'll go back and translate the original as it was. Um, and it was amazing because she came back to me and she gave me exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, she understood how I didn't understand it. And that was fantastic. Um, I know that some translators, literary translators, prefer to work on classics because the author's not around um, to criticize or meddle or question, um, which is hard, especially if the authors don't speak English that well. Um, but I love working with living authors. That's all I want to do because I can go to the, I mean, not only am I translating for them and I like to be doing translation for someone, not an anonymous reader, but just for a person. Um, but because I can ask them these questions, because sometimes in literary translation, you can go, I can go to three Italians and say, what do you think this sentence means? And I'll get three answers. So if I go to the author, they know the answer to that question. One thing about translation, Rosella, since Rosella is also a translator, she and I are both going to be appearing together at an event. Uh, it's a translation festival on October 20th called Con Altre Parole, with other words. And it's being held by the University of Bologna. And she's going to be speaking about how to, in a way, translate traumatic events into novels. So she'll be speaking about uh, uh, the women at Hitler's table, but also her latest novel about children um, who are under fire during the siege of Sarajevo. I'm going to be there and I'll be talking about translating her translation of trauma. So it's the story of children who are trapped in an orphanage in Sarajevo um, during the siege. And not all of them are orphans. Some of them are left there by their parents who can't feed them and can't take care of them. And they're shipped to, they're taken by bus and by plane to Italy to be uh, saved from the war. But unfortunately, because it was impossible to contact many of the parents uh, before they were evacuated, some of them were not reunited with their parents, even for decades. Um, and it's just an amazing story. 
I think you said uh, you prefer uh, first person narratives for uh, translation. I do. I I like um getting into a character's head. I like the emotions that come through. I like the the thoughts that occur to them. It's just a really great way of kind of escaping because I love to to escape through translations. And if you're inside someone's head, you are really somewhere else. Um I love translating in rhyme, I love translating and adapting jokes, but I love translating in the first person. It's just a lot of fun. I'm translating a book sample right now and it's really interesting with the narration because it's a a guy who's talking about a story he heard from a woman. And in the woman's story, she's talking about hearing a story from someone else. And then as the author tells the story about the story, he interrupts with with bits of his conversation with the woman as she's telling him the story and then that's interrupted by the woman telling the author what he was like when she told him the story and so the narration is all over the place it's just beautiful i'm i'm also in the last few years i've been working with amici della scala which is friends of la scala opera house and i've been translating um something i'm not specialized in that uh, twofold i'm not specialized in nonfiction and i'm not specialized in theater and opera um and this is about set and costume designers and it's really hard i mean that's hard because it's a lot of research um and that's something that i'm not so comfortable with but if if it's a challenge because it's kind of weird and twisted and strange i love that that's the kind of hard that i love to translate i'll spend hours and hours and hours just happy as a clam um because it's fun The other novel that you translated recently Lost on Me is again in first person narration. This is a book by Veronica Raimo and it came out this summer. It was out in the US and uh the UK and it's just this funny book. It was originally written as a series of monologues that were supposed to be performed on stage. But then COVID came around and all the theaters in Italy were closed. And so Veronica because we didn't know when it was going to end. We didn't know if it was going to be 6 months or 6 years or never. Um and so Veronica took her time and rewrote it as a novel. Um some people would call it autofiction. She doesn't like that term. She prefers to call it a novel. And it's a story about a character that is a lot like her. They share the name of Veronica. Um they were both raised in Rome. Um and it's the story of how this woman this young woman tries to grow into adulthood from this very strange family and it's just a series of of anecdotes and stories um and it's a lot of fun it's it's called lost on me the original title was niente di vero which is a which is wordplay because it means both nothing true but also nothing about vero nothing about veronica because she lies a lot this is the thing in this story she's the most unreliable narrator she's talking about these things and she says well you know in my family we kind of make things up and maybe it happened and maybe it didn't and in it's autofiction but it's not um we decided to call it because we didn't have that play on words veronica actually came up with the title lost on me and it it's i think it's very fitting cuz all these life lessons are kind of lost on our main character as she tries to become an adult Now tell us about your uh, most recent translation Glorious. Roberto Piumini is just a national treasure in Italy. Um he's in his 70s, he lives here in Milan. Um and he's known in every Italian bookshop and every Italian school. He writes for all ages but primarily for children. 
Um, in fact, now he's been nominated for the third time in a row for the Hens Christian Anderson Award. And I'm hoping in 2024 that three's the charm. Um, Glow Rushes is his masterpiece. Uh, he wrote it in 1987. And strangely enough, it has never been published in English before. This is the very first time. So Pushkin Press uh, published it in the UK in December. It's coming out on October 17th in the US and Canada uh, through New York Review Books. And I'm so happy because this was just an overlooked jewel um, of Italian literature. And it's a story for both kids and adults. It's a very poetic tale um, set in Turkey a long time ago. There's a wealthy lord who summons a famous painter to the palace and explains that he has a young son. And this son is forced to live because of um, an incurable illness. He's allergic to sunlight and dust and pollen and air from the outside world. And so he's forced to live in three windowless rooms in the center of his father's palace. Um, and the father says, will you paint a couple murals for him? So he has something of beauty to look at. When the painter goes and meets the boy and starts, they start discussing what they want to paint in these murals. They become really good friends and the boy is very creative and they come up with these stories and these pictures and scenes and the project develops. And all of a sudden they decide to paint all of the walls in all of the boys' rooms and it becomes a years long endeavor. And they paint basically a world that they've created together. And it's a way for the boy to live the life he can't live um, in the outside world. It is just absolutely a beautiful story. It's out now for the very first time. And it's it's just a great example of how many jewels of Italian literature that there are that haven't been published in English. This year, uh, you've been uh, one of the three judges for uh, Italian Prose in Translation Award. Well, the Italian Prose in Translation Award is an, it's an annual prize of $5,000 that's given to a work of Italian fiction and translation that's really captured the spirit of the original. Um, this year, I was one of the three judges. It was me, Jenny McPhee, and Jamie Richards. And for months we, we spent together, we read a whole lot of books um, from Italian literature published in English, and they were just one more beautiful than the other. Um, the winner is going to be announced in November at the ALTA conference. Um, ALTA is the American Literary Translators Association. And we're just excited to see, because this is a great way to showcase Italian literature and translation. Um, we'd also like to see more of this published, um, because basically Italian to English literary translators don't have that much work. We would like to see more books, you know, sold, the right sold into English so that we have more work to do. Um, and also it's lovely stuff. Um, but one of the great, uh, pieces of news recently is that at the 2024 Frankfurt Book Fair, Italy is going to be the country of honor. And this is just a really exciting time to work with Italian literature in translation because also because the Italian government is dedicating a lot of money to translation funding. In fact, both Glow Rushes and Lost on Me, um, the, the publishers of these two books were given money to help defray their translation costs. So if you're a foreign publisher, keep your eyes open on a website that's called newitalianbooks.it. 
Um, this is a website that talks about Italian books. It talks about Italian authors. It has interviews. It talks about the translation funding that's available. And it also has a database of literary translators who work with Italian. Um, and also, if you're an Italian to English literary translator, do keep your ears open because what I'm hoping is that somehow we can all get together and help make the 2024 Frankfurt Book Fair a success. Um, one thing I've, I've done is I've gotten in touch with the Global Literature in Libraries Initiative. And they do, for example, they'll do a month of women in translation. They help promote, you know, for one month, they'll do online reviews of all sorts of different books so that librarians in America know what's out there um, and can request these books. So I've spoken to them about the possibility of holding an online translator-run Italian Literature in Translation Month. And there is a slot open next year in October, which would tie in really well with the fair. So I'm hoping we can get together and make this work. What does uh, translation personally mean to you? Why do you translate? I've been translating longer than I haven't. I've spent more than half my life translating. Um, and especially fiction, I just have this passion for translating fiction, um, working with living authors. I love translating things in the first person and rhymes and jokes. And, but I, I especially love the variety. And I think that's the thing because every author is different. They have a different voice. They have a different story. And I love going from one thing to the next and everything is always new. There's no repetition there. Um, and it's just what makes me wake up in the morning and smile. That's it's translation is just what brings me joy. Please read a couple of paragraphs from the novel, The Women at Hitler's Table, in Italian and also in English. So the, the paragraph that I chose uh, is going to give us an example of the rhythm of Rosella's prose. What's going on in this scene is Rosella's, uh, she's lost her brother, lost her father, uh, lost her husband who joined the war. Um, she has moved back in with her mother and the two of them are awoken in the middle of the night from the, by the air raid siren, which happens all the time. So they scramble down to the cellar where they're packed in tightly with all their neighbors who have gone down there seeking shelter. So, um, I'll read it first in English, and then I'll read the Italian, so you can kind of follow along um, as I read this, the original version. As I raced down the cellar stairs with my arm around my mother on that March night, I wondered what note it was, the sound of the air raid siren. As a girl I had sung in the school choir, the teacher had complimented my pitch, the timbre of my voice, but I hadn't studied music, so I couldn't tell the notes apart. And yet... As I nestled down in my spot beside Frau Reinick with her big brown kerchief on her head, as I stared at Frau Price's black shoes deformed by her bunioned big toe, at the hairs sticking out of Herr Holler's ears, at the Schmidt's son Anton's two tiny front teeth, and as my mother's breath, Are you cold? she whispered to me, bundle up, became the only profane yet familiar smell I had to cling to. All that while, the only thing that mattered to me was finding out what note corresponded to that long blare of the siren. Quella notte, correndo per le scale con mia madre sotto braccio, mi chiedevo che nota fosse il suono della sirena antiaerea. Da ragazzina avevo cantato nel coro della scuola, 
L'insegnante lodava la mia intonazione, il timbro vocale, ma non avevo studiato musica e le note non sapevo distinguere. Eppure, mentre mi sistemavo accanto a Frau Reich col suo fazzoletto marrone in testa, mentre guardavo le scarpe nere di Frau Price sformate dall'aluce valgo, i peli che spuntavano dalle orecchie di Herr Holler e i due minuscoli incisivi di Anton, il figlio dell'Ischwitz, mentre l'alito di mia madre, che mi sussurrava «Freddo, copriti!» diventava l'unico odore osceno e familiare cui attaccarmi. Nient'altro mi importava, se non di sapere a quale nota corrispondesse lo squillo prolungato della sirena. Thank you, thank you, Leo. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely.